Man, there is something about the song Firm Foundation that's been an anthem in my life. I hope you enjoyed it as much as me. Thank you, worship team, for leading us in that time. Well, listen, I'm excited for the word. I would love to jump in right now. Would you join me in the place of prayer? So, Lord, we thank you that we get this awesome privilege to sit at your feet and learn. I pray that this word go forth to bring lasting transformation in the lives of people you love deeply. Be with me as I share. It's in Christ's name. Amen. You know, like many preteens and teenagers, growing up, I got my cue of style and how to dress from what I saw on TV. And at the time, I might age myself with this one. Some of you might be right there with me. I remember LL Cool J was like the smoothest ladies man on TV. You couldn't tell him anything. And one of his key mark designs or styles LL would do is the whole one leg up and one leg down. How many of you know what I'm talking about? And he would just step in and talk and rap or whatever he was doing. And so I kind of mimicked this same thing. I had my, you know, my pant leg, one leg up, one leg down, my ears were pierced. I thought I was a pretty boy. And, and I'm thinking I'm doing something. What was interesting, though, is that one time I was going to a family friend's house. Now, I was dressed in my LL Cool J regalia, if you will. And when I walk in, the first thing this woman said to me was not hello. It was, whoa, you're dressed like a child of the devil. That thing hit me like a ton of bricks. Now, now I can go back, look at that and thought, oh, that's kind of strange. But at the time, if I'm being honest, it may have started painting to the picture, which is the title of my talk today. What does God want from me? What does God want from me? In essence, you know, what does it mean to follow God? What, what do I have to do to qualify to be in God's family? And so it started painting this for me. And you may be here today and, and you may not even recognize some of the experiences you had along the way are painting this picture of what you think God wants from you. But I want to answer this question and I'm going to land right here in Luke 18, 9 through 14. And as we're preparing to answer this question, I want you to see something interesting interesting that I think the gospel writer Luke does intentionally. He sandwiches this text that I'm going to read right between two stories. One is the persistent widow. It's right above it. And the persistent widow, if you know anything about uh, the time of Jesus' time, so to speak, they were low on the totem pole. They had no consistent income very often. They were very much overlooked. And then Right after the story I'm going to read, he, he, he mentions that he welcomes the children. And so, again, the children in those Bible days were very often overlooked. Why? Because they really had no authority. They haven't come into their own. So I believe you see this passage now right here. And, and I believe it's going to be a reminder that God is a God of the outcast and those who may be marginalized and on the fringes. Luke 18, 9 through 14, we see what goes on. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. 
two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. Verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on a sinner like me. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Real poignant passage. We, we see in this passage that, that Jesus himself is separating. He's juxtaposing two types of people. He, he's showing this Pharisee, this individual who would have been known in his time as an individual who was separated. He was a holy one. Pharisees were rock stars. People looked up to them. They looked at them like, man, those are the folks that are really sold out to God. Those are the religious leaders. They were so separated that they lived in their own cloister. Why? Because they thought they didn't want to be defiled by the sinners around them. They didn't want to be defiled by those who they considered to be beneath them. They were legalists of all legalists. They, they were concerned with a, a, a kosher diet. They were concerned with a, a, a circumcision. They, they, they strictly observed the Sabbath. They did all this stuff. They checked all the religious boxes. And so he juxtaposes this Pharisee to this tax collector. And the tax collector, if you know anything about them, they were the total opposite in society. No one liked them. They, they, the, the job went to the highest bidder. Why? Because they would charge extra tax, extra taxes upon the government's ordinance to keep for themselves. They went there and said, hey, I'll charge you five, you know, if the tax was five dollars, they'll take 12, 15 from you and pocket the rest. They, they were so wicked. And tax collectors were known for that. So people didn't generally want them in the community. They were categorically not individuals you want to hang around. In fact, legend has it that it would be hard for them to repent because in order to get things right, they had to pay back too many people. So tax collectors were solely separate. So now listen, he's juxtaposing two people, the Pharisee and the tax collector. As I answer the question, what does God want from me? For each answer, I'm going to look at the bad example of the Pharisee and the good example or the prime example of the tax collector that I think we learned from in this passage. So what does he want from me? My first answer would be this. He wants reverence. He wants reverence. See, reverence by definition is to have a deep respect for someone or something. It's to have a deep honor for them. It's, 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 I, I recognize that you deserve a sense of honor or reverence or respect. And the Pharisee lacked that level of reverence. In fact, verse 11 says he stood up and prayed about himself. So now think about the nerve of this guy. He's talking to the almighty God himself. He goes to the temple to pray, which was normal in that context. People felt if you want to connect with God, go to church, go to the temple. Right. And he prays about himself. Nowhere in his prayer does he acknowledge a distinction between he and God. It's almost as if he's saying without saying it, he's equating himself to God. 
his cleanliness, his track record, his sense of set-apartness makes him a bit irreverent because he thinks we're here. We're out of eye. I'm, I'm super holy. He forgot his distinction. There's a difference between humanity and an infinite God. It's easy to forget our distinction sometime. In fact, my, my daughter has been doing it more often than not. I love her. But what's interesting, she's just a toddler. And we have a newborn in the house. My son came along and, and now she's getting acclimated what this is about. So my daughter, I love when she sings around the house. She sings nice and loud and boisterous. It's all over the place. You hear it in every room, at every level, at the highest wavelength possible. And so she's singing. And now there are times we have to remind her, my, my, my daughter's name's Ella. And I go, Ella, you know, you got to bring it down. Little Lionel Chase, my son, he's sleeping. You got to bring it down. So we'll go, shh. And so now she's used to it. We give her the look and we go, shh, she'll bring it down. But she forgot her distinction because there are times my wife and I are just having a conversation and she'll look at us and go, shh. The, the, the look on my face, who are you shushing? You know, that's the look on my face. She forgot. It's funny. She forgot there's a distinction. The reason I have the authority in the house is because I'm her father to shush her, to bring her down a little bit. She, we're not on the same level. I have an authority over my daughter. And the same way us and God are not on the same level. We haven't earned our right before our holy king. He has an authority over us. And I believe if we get the most from him, it's to revere him and, and reverence him. And that's what the tax collector does. The tax collector doesn't think he and God are equals. Verse 13 says he stood at a distance and he looked up to heaven. He stood at a distance to say as if, man, I didn't earn my spot before this holy God. You're, you're different than me. You're other than. Listen, it's great to know that Jesus, yes, he's approachable. And I'm going to get to that. Yes, he, he is a compassionate God. I'm going to get to that. But we need to keep in mind without separating that from his holiness, he is other than us, man. And that's a blessing to have him set apart and separate from from us. He is not like us, though we're made in his image. He exists on his own. He is distinctly other than. He is different, and he deserves to be revered for that. So if we're going to see what does God want from me, I think he wants reverence. He wants to know that we know he's an infinite God. We're finite people, but yet we can approach him. So now the answer to the second point I want to bring out and answer this question is this. What does God want from me? He wants repentance. Again, the Pharisee, we made the case that the Pharisee forgets his distinction. He forgets that he is not like God. He, he thinks they're equal. And what we call that sometimes is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is, is this. It's unfounded confidence in your own moral superiority. 
unfounded confidence in your own moral superiority. And that's it's self-righteous folk think they're doing God a favor when they show up to the house of God. I'm doing God a favor because I tuned in to CC online to see what was going on. I'm doing God a favor. Listen, you're not doing God a favor. I'm not doing God a favor in that. We get the privilege to come and pursue him and to know this God. But get this, he is, man, he is self-righteous. Luke 18, 11, this Pharisee wasn't messing around. He said, God, I thank you that I'm not like the other men, the robbers, the evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He really went into the presence of God with 2020 vision on everybody else's sin, but he was legally blind on his own sin. <laughs> Interestingly enough, hey, one of the ways you may know you're struggling with self-righteousness is you clearly see the sin of others around you and you are uh, uh, blind as a bat, so to speak, at looking at your own frailty. And that's exactly what he does. It was Charles Spurgeon who put it like this. He said, the greatest enemy to human souls is a self-righteous spirit which makes men look to themselves for salvation. And that's since I qualify myself before you, God. At least I'm not like those bad people. At least I'm not like that individual. Hey, I, I, I sin, but at least I don't sin as bad as that person. See, that's when we get into a trap. And he's modeling this unhealthy sense of self-righteousness. Hey, I, I, I've been around that. It, it's interesting because what's scary is that I think many of us could slip into that and not even realize it. One day I was preaching at a church. This had to be, man, 15 years ago, I was the guest speaker. I, I walked into this church. I went into the pastor's green room, so to speak, and I saw this calendar up on the, on the wall. And this calendar had lines. He had like red lines across each date on the calendar. So secretly, I'm, I'm thinking, what? I wonder what these red lines are across on the calendar. And, and I didn't say anything, though. Maybe I was being, you know, as they say down south, maybe I was having a little nose trouble, being a little nosy, but I didn't say anything. And so I look and I see these lines and then he sees that I'm looking at it and he goes, oh, you want to know what those are? And I'm just waiting to see what he says. And he goes, each line you see crossed out on the calendar those are days that I went without sin. He goes on to tell me, it's been 51 days since I've last sinned. 51 what? My brother just told me on the 52nd day that he went 51 days without sinning. I thought to myself, You's a liar, so I know you lying on day 52. You better not put a cross on this one because you just lied to my face talking about you having sinned in 51 days. Now, that's wacky theology. It, to say you, you haven't sinned in 51 days means not just you didn't do bad things, but there are things you should have done that you automatically done. You were as loving as you were supposed to be. You were as giving as you were supposed to be. So we know the theology is wacky, but I thought to myself, I feel bad for this congregation who has to sit under a self-righteous leader. Self-righteousness, again, will give us 20-20 vision on other sins, but will make us legally blind to our brokenness. And I told you I was going to give the bad example of the Pharisee. Look at the good example of the tax collector. 
Verse 13 says he wouldn't even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He recognized, I don't deserve grace. Grace is to extend what we don't deserve. Mercy is to withhold what we do deserve. And we deserve the wrath of God. But I love his integrity, his honesty. Listen, if you're tuning in, we all have junk in our lives. We all have trash in our lives. That's not the issue. The issue is what are you doing with the trash in your life? Are you hiding it or acting like it doesn't exist? Or are you open and honestly bringing it before a holy God to say, Lord, have mercy on me. Be gracious with me me. I repent because I'm making the case. What he's after is repentance. What he's after is you recognizing, listen, I don't have it all together. I'm all jacked up. I, I so have a heart that easily forgets how good I have it in you, that easily forgets that you are the God of the universe, that you deserve honor and glory. I so easily can forget that. And listen, it's repentance that God is after. And so he beats his breast. He recognizes, I don't have it together. And he comes before God for mercy. Psalm 51, 17 captures this. It says, my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. That's what God's after. A repentant, broken, and contrite heart. It's almost like if you were riding a bike. You know, we would ride our little mongoose or GT. I don't know what kind of bike you had. And sometimes we were going uphill. And, and, and I remember those days when you're riding a bike uphill and you ever felt the wind blowing against you? I'm talking like, man, you're truly going against the wind and you're having a hard time going uphill and you're going extra hard to go uphill. And it's like, man, this wind is blowing against me. And then one of the best things that happens when you get to the top of the hill, if you wanted an adrenaline rush, you turn the bike around and then you fly down that hill with the force of the wind behind you. It's one of the most exhilarating experiences. That's what repentance is about. You see, repentance is this. Many times we're trying to live our lives against the hill of God, against God's commands, against God's leadership. And so it's like living a life uphill with the wind blowing against us. But when we finally repent and we turn around and go the other way, that same wind that felt resistant is the same wind that'll propel you to where God wants you to go. That's the power of the Holy Spirit. So when we repent, it empowers us to walk in alignment. It empowers us to move in the trajectory of what God has for us. So I want to present you with this opportunity. If you have yet to get yourself right with the Lord, don't be scared. Don't use, don't let condemnation take a place. Condemnation will make you feel like I need to stand apart. I don't deserve God. I'm shameful. Yeah, we don't deserve him, but I love conviction. Why? Because conviction says I can draw close to God. I can use that same wind that felt resistant against me to empower me to walk in the plan and the purposes God has for me. There's a gift in repentance. There's a gift in that. And when you repent, it opens the door to my last and final point. Not only does he want reverence, not only does he want repentance, but here's the ultimate gift. 
What God wants from you is relationship. He wants relationship. The Pharisee didn't understand anything about real relationship. He understood tradition and religion. You see, traditions aren't bad in and of themselves. It's not bad to, to walk or hold to a certain level of tradition or discipline. It's not bad. He, he does mention, I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all that I got. That's what he mentions in the prayer as if to qualify himself. He understood that. But listen, here's the issue. When you're using tradition or regulation as your access point to God to qualify you to God, that's when it's all bad. I'll take it a step further. It's terrible. The Old Testament says even our good deeds are as filthy rags before a holy God. It's never good enough. Listen, religion can never be a substitute for relationship with God. And so now he's trying to make this substitute. God, look what I do. I check all the boxes. I do all the good works. And he brings that into the place of prayer. It reminds me of the... Uh, 1924 Olympic athlete, Harold Abrams. I'm talking about when you feel like you need to perform in order to be accepted. He said something that, that, that will definitely uh, jar me to, uh, jarred me a little bit. He said, again, this, this runner on the 100-meter sprint in 1924, Harold Abrams said, I'll raise my eyes and look down the corridor four feet wide with 10 lonely seconds to justify my existence. You know how sad that statement is? When he would prepare for a race, he said, I have these 10 lonely seconds, four feet wide in this 100 meters to justify my existence. If I didn't perform well, my existence is pointless. This Pharisee throws up this 10-second prayer, if you will, to justify while he's good with God not realizing the whole time you can do all the right things and still have a heart that's distanced from God. He didn't have relationship. Oh, but how sweet it is that mercy was extended to the tax collector in Luke 18 through 18, 14, it reads, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, speaking of the Pharisee, went home justified before God for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. In essence, he went home a saved man. Yes, in, in, your, in, in your society, he was, he was frowned upon. He was marginalized. He was looked at as the worst of them. Nobody wanted to hang with him. But listen, when he, when he went there pursuing relationship with God, it says he went home a, a changed man, unlike the other guy who thought he had it all together. It uses the phrase justified. Justification, it says, it's, it's when we stand before a holy God, just as I have not sinned. And let me give you the definition for my scholars out there, my theology students out there, my, my scholars. The justification in Christian theology is God's act of removing the guilt and penalty of sin, while at the same time declaring a sinner righteous through Christ's atoning sacrifice. That's the proper theological definition if you wanted it. But it's simply saying he removes the guilt and accepts us before him. 
And so he gets the joy of having this relationship and ultimately that's what God's after. And so if you're reading this chapter in Luke, again, full circle, you would see that that's what he was trying to make the case for, that God, yeah, he's for the persistent widow right before this passage. And yes, he's he's for the children. You know, Jesus loved the kids, as they would say. But he, And then it says he's for the tax collector. He's the good example in this story. What does that mean? God is after the marginalized. You may have been written off by others. You may have been forgotten by others. Individuals may have looked past you and looked over you and sidestepped you. But I want you to know you're a prime candidate for the grace of God to be in relationship with him. I don't know what your story is. I don't know what you experienced growing up. I don't know what kind of trauma you've gone through. I do want you to know, though, you are a prime candidate for the grace of God and he desires a relationship with you if you're tuning in right now. That's what he's after. He's after that. It's not just religion. It's not just all that other stuff you think it is. He's after you. He's after your heart. I remember I was sitting in a church one day and I heard this, this, this old Baptist preacher preaching on David. And if you know anything about King David, he was an adulterer. He had some folks murdered. And he said this line that I'll never forget in his, his Southern Baptist way. He said, God will do the almighty through the least likely. And so I think that thing never left my mind. I, I, that's not my preaching style. I'm not looking down on that preaching style, but I love the sentiment of that statement. God can do the almighty through the least likely. If you think you're marginalized, praise God. If you think you're the least likely, praise God, because God can do the almighty through you. It was Brennan Manning, a priest and author, who puts it so well. He says, God loves you unconditionally as you are, not as you should be, because nobody is as they should be. Nobody has qualified for God's love apart from the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 3, 23 reminds me that we all have sinned and all is all that all means. Everyone has sinned before a holy God, but yet he still thought fit to desire and want relationship from us. I'll close with the story that occurred in 2016. It made headlines and it really struck me. Lou Oliveira, a district court judge in North Carolina who was a former army intelligence officer, a Gulf War veteran, he sentenced Beret Joe Cerna, a veteran of the war of Afghanistan, to a night in prison. He was struggling with PTSD and so he turned to drugs and failed a urine test and violated probation he wasn't supposed to fail that urine test. And Judge, Judge Oliveira, according to CBS News, says, I gave Joe a night in jail because he had to be held accountable. He had to hold them accountable. I have to, I have to essentially uphold the law as a judge. But he talks about being moved with compassion, though he had to enforce the law. So what he did, this is what made the headlines. He not only sentenced him to one night in prison, he personally walked Cerna and escorted him to the prison, didn't stop there. He entered that prison, sat down and spent the night with him 
in that prison and got to know him in a way that he never know. So that, listen, that that was powerful. People were minds were blown when they saw the judge literally spent the night with the individual that he just sentenced. And when asked why, Judge Oliver is quoted by saying, I'm a judge and I've seen evil, but I see the humanity in people. Joe is a good man helping him help me. I wanted him to know he isn't alone. I want you to know something. Though that's a great act, and though the same judge who gave out the sentence served the sentence, we have a mighty judge that took it even a step further. We have the mighty judge, the great judge, our Lord, who looked at it and said, yes, we are sinners. Yes, we are guilty. Yes, we deserve to be eternally apart from him in our own prison. But listen, he took it a step further. He didn't even bring us into the prison. He went to the cross. He experienced that prison, that separation from his father himself and atoned for our sins. And his blood was shed for our sins. Why? So we would never have to spend a night in a prison away from him. He made our Access. So though that judge, that earthly judge did something great, our great judge and our king did something better. He offers a salvation that no one can concoct on their own, but can only access through the grace of God. Now the question becomes, are we going to be the Pharisee and trust in our own abilities, in our own way, in our own righteousness, or are we going to be like the tax collector and recognize I'm in need of this saving grace and I want to accept the work that Jesus did on the cross for me. Now you're faced with this decision, those that are tuning in. I made this appeal to you. Maybe you don't know Jesus and you're here. Maybe you're like me. You had a very skewed perspective of who Jesus was growing up and what God was after. But you're here today and you recognize, look, at, look, he's after reverence. He wants to know that I know that I'm different than him. He's after repentance. Why? Because he's ultimately after relationship. And maybe you want to begin your relationship today. Maybe you're here and you feel like, you know what, that, you're talking to me, man. You're talking to me, sir. I don't care how many bad things you did, you could never sidestep the grace of God. I don't care how many good things you did. As you can see from the scripture, you can never earn the grace of God. But if you want to know Jesus as Savior, I want you to pray right now by faith. This is the access point into intimacy with God and to know him for who he is. If that's you, maybe you prayed this prayer years ago and fell away. and You want to come back or you never prayed this prayer at all to receive Christ. I want to give you this opportunity right in this moment. Don't go anywhere. Don't change the channel. Don't close the sermon out. Don't do that. God wants to do business with you. Right now, right where you are, say, Lord Jesus, come into my life. Change me. Wash away my sin that I may know you, that I may live for you, that I may walk with you from this day forward as Lord of my life. It's in Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen. Listen, if you prayed that prayer with me and you meant business with God, I want to congratulate you. Congratulations. Welcome to the family of God. This is what God was after. And this is what God wants from you is that relationship.
We want to give you some tools to help anchor you further, give you some instruction on where do you go from here, what do you do now. You can follow the prompting on the screens. Those promptings right there will give you access and insight into some helps you can get along the way to help anchor you in your faith. Listen, this next step is key, so you don't want to miss it. Don't just overlook this part. This is key to help shoring up Jesus truly being your firm foundation. Welcome to the family of God. Now, for the rest of us, as I come to a close, I want to walk through a time of communion. My communion cup's right over here. Let me go get it ready. But as we're prepping for communion, I want you to keep something in mind. The gospel is not just for the non-believer, the person who doesn't know Jesus. The gospel's for us. And sometimes we can have sin in our lives, those who follow Jesus. It could be the sin of self-righteousness, the sin of waywardness. You could be the legalist like the Pharisee or the lawless like the tax collector. We, we could have stuff in our lives that hinder our ability to connect with God and truly enjoy our relationship with him. If that's you and you're there, I want to walk you through this time of repentance. Whatever it is you need to ask for forgiveness for, I'm going to step back for a moment, let you connect with God and repent. Turn away. Say, God, I don't, I don't want to fight against your will and your way anymore. I want to enjoy my relationship with you. You have your moment. Matthew 20, 26 reads, while they were eating, Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat. This is my body. Let us take that which represents the body of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 27 goes on to say, then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which poured out for the forgiveness of sins. Let us take that which represents the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Lord, we thank you for this awesome privilege to bring our sin and our brokenness before you, not to be rejected, not to be cast aside, but to deal with us according to your love and according to your compassion. And I pray that you give us the strength to continue to walk in victory and alignment with you that we can truly say, we know what you want from us. What does God want from me? This healthy relationship where we walk intimately together. It's in Christ's name we pray. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in. I look forward and hope to see you in person one day at one of our campuses. Have a great rest of your day.